I don't think it makes sense to drill another hole in Western Australia to look for lithium for the next two to three years in light of what's happened in the last three months. Right on, money miners. Another episode on the tens with an American. <laughs> Love it. Another one who's uh, famous in the in the world of Twitter as well. Oh, Mintwit. The, the world of Travis Ricciardo. <laughs> Travis Ricciardo's alternative existence. The world of Elon Musk, mate, Twitter. It's now yeah. X. Right, so we've got the koala on. He's got yeah. a big koala in front of his mug, which tell you what, which it, I thought it was going to be an easy task on Premiere Pro, but it was, <laughs> fucking did me head in. Anyway, mate, um, it, I thought there'd be some AI software that could have just had it bobbling, but anyway. I feel like I've watched you like bend a bunch of bolts today, just yeah. going mad. Just melting on the inside. <laughs> anyway, we've got yeah. it. So two-parter, because he can bloody talk, and <laughs> part one, what do we say? So we go into a bit of historical potential upcoming M&A around the world, talk about Glencore. Uh, with BHB and the stuff. B, we took, BHB. A lot of the tier one assets we touch on. He has M&A. a bit of a theory about the hype cycle of these uh, M&A majors and how they're just going to get FOMO. Mm, then we go he into Australian lithium. We do. Why not talk? So in part two was, geez, I haven't even got to part two on the edit yet. And there was a lot yep. more. We'll tell you what part two is about when part two comes out. That's it. We talk about why lithium is what iron ore was 20 years ago. How would you describe koala? After um, after after our chat with him, Matty JD. Well, I think it's it's right to give a bit of background on him. This is a guy who's obviously uh, anonymous, but he's got a background in the sell side and buy side of natural resource finance. So mm-hmm. he comes across. He's got strong opinions. You know, some that he holds quite tight. He uh, loves to specialize and dabble in around M and A at the at the big end of town. I think it's fair to say we. Don't agree with every single point, but that always makes for a juicy interview and a juicy conversation. The more beers I had, the more I disagreed with him on. The, the, more, <laughs> the more punchy you got. <laughs> but I'm keen to see what the what the money miners take away and what they what they think of this sort of style. Getting the old anonymous, you know, or pseudonymous Twitter personalities on the show. It'll be it'll be better when I can get the koala head talking. <laughs> with That'll it. make you happy. That'll make me yeah. happy. But right. kudos to him for dropping in on his one day that he had in Perth. Yeah, um, absolutely. All right, part one coming up, part two coming up after part one at another day. Trav, you've got a video that you've found, <laughs> which is will play for the money miners. I do indeed. I saw this and I just thought, mate, this is prime material for us to talk about. Here we go. Right, here it is. You see, all these costly court cases with my children have really taken a toll. I don't have much left that's mine except for my mind. Well, that may be as such, but I can't move on a dollar fifty. Dollar twenty-five cash. Dumb. Oh, except I don't carry that sort of money. Can you break some iron ore? I'll just get my chisel. Pick the change. <laughs> Good work, Gina. <laughs> Good work, Gina. God, you. That God, they would have to get legal to run over that video, all those videos. <laughs> Why is this relevant? Because we have, I have seen a rock handed to me at a at the barn me shop, it's, saying, it's "Can like, we get Ryan O'Sullivan in here to break this?" So I think, in the honour of our love for K drill, 
we need to approach this organisation and see if we can possibly redo that video with Ryan behind the counter. <laughs> can you can you break some iron oil for me? <laughs> <laughs> fucking oath I can, says Ryan O'Sullivan, and just snaps the fucking thing in half right in front of her. That would be a better video. I reckon it would. Agreed. <laughs> Mate, 100%. Mate, Ryan v. Gina. Love to see that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, while K-Drew aren't breaking rock with, with their bare hands, I, I don't know if they've engaged yet for those two new diamond drill rigs they got for the surface. Ooh. But I'm just going to leave the people in suspense. I may or may know not if they have or not. I'd suggest getting quick. Getting quick. Mate. Getting quick for a surface diamond drilling contractor for – Someone that can also do RC drilling and can <laughs> ru- and can break iron ore from their bare with their bare hands that is given to them by Australia's w- richest woman. <laughs> that can happen too. The, yeah, for, if you've got if, any of those needs, just call K Drill. Yeah, Gina, if you want to actually break a bit of iron ore, get Ryan O'Sullivan from K Drill to do it. Call out, call out to Hancock on that one. Yeah, you'd be mad not to. Ryan doesn't need a chisel. Right, boys, I learnt another word. I'm learning words every day. What's the new word? What was the other one you called? Astroturfing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. That was a good one. one. Another word for the money miners greenwashing. Ooh. Have you heard of greenwashing? Yeah, I have. You've always heard of the words, and I haven't. (laughs) I think you read a lot more. So apparently. This is like, I need that thing to come up with the definition, dictionary bloody thing. It'll happen in post. Greenwashing is when an organisation spends more time and money on marketing itself as environmentally friendly than actually minimising its environmental impact. Yeah. Greenwashing. And apparently you can get in shit for it now. Yeah. ASIC. ASIC don't like it. Really? No, no, they put out, uh, there was an article here, which I'll I'll bring up. So they're deeply committed to protecting Australians from financial harm, acting on, acting on and deterring misconduct and upholding the integrity of Australia's financial system, which pretty much means any company that is uh, greenwashing will get in a lot of trouble. I'm sure they have their work cut out then. And it would be easy to look like you're greenwashing when maybe you're not. Maybe you put your words wrong in your ESG statements. Mm. Don't yeah. don't leave it to chance. No. Benny Swan is an expert in keeping you out of the shit for greenwashing. <laughs> Future proof. Don't greenwash because that's don't, don't do it. But <laughs> you might accidentally do it and you don't even know you've done it. We know about that sort of stuff. Um <laughs> get, get get Ben Swan and Future Proof to give a bit of a proofread. That's why they call it Future Proof. It's a Future Proofread. If you are greenwashing, Ben will give you a big smack. He'll give you a smack on the bottom. And then he'll fix all of your crap. Yeah. Or if you've accidentally done it, he'll change the wording to make it make you look accordingly. Whether do, you're doing it or not doing it, get Benny Swan to run his eye over it from Future Proof and anything other ESG. So... E-S-G. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say <laughs> It's a word now, mate. You changed oh, no. forever changed ESG. Oh, no, just keep it. That's hilarious. <laughs> I meant to say anything ESG related, get the industry's ESGC to sort you out. Oh, Love your work. It's just on me mind all the time. <laughs> Benny Swamp, future proof, ESG, absolute 
gurus. Right, as much fun as I'm having here, we better get into the koalas yarn. <laughs> Let's here rip it. Part one. Righto, money miners, here we go. Some, something about every time we interview Americans, we get on the tins. <laughs> Bloody great, mate. Thanks for uh, giving us the opportunity. Now, you might say a little funny thing flopping around in front of this fella's head. This is Yellow Lab Life, the koala off Twitter, and he will remain the koala. Exactly. But why? <laughs> You've picked the most un-American animal to go by. Please explain. Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> Where's this industry actually uh, come from? Uh, I won't say Brazil because I know there's a little bit of an inferiority complex here in WA about how good the iron ore is in uh, Brazil <laughs> or in uh, the Labrador trough or a uh, Simindu. But, uh, you know, this is kind of a place where when you think about first world jurisdictions where we get the building blocks of our society, the fact of the matter is this – third of the country as long until China decides to get a blue water Navy and take it over. Um, this is the desert that is going to have built the cities of China, the cities of India and uh, the modernization of Africa and all the emerging markets. And it's something that, yeah, all of it's done in us dollars, but these are the people and these are the lands that are delivering. And so a little hat tip to uh, you wallabies and kangaroos. This that is I, the, this is, this I'm is lazy. The, I'm lazy. I, I sit in a tree and I just watch you guys do all the work. That's <laughs> that's what the finance guys do. I've heard you wait, wait, and yeah. I know that's the closest we're ever going to get to a compliment from you, so we'll take it. <laughs> what's a, Now, what's the go with this, buddy? This is, this is a point of conjecture for me and JD sometimes. The, the anonymity in Twitter pseudonyms. Like, mate, I say, if you're that bloody good, put your mug behind it. But what's the theory behind the whole thing, the koala? So uh, I started this when I was on garden leave, serving out a non-compete, and I was just getting incredibly bored in early 2020. And then Then COVID come along, you would have got even more bored. Yeah, but then we all realized that uh, what we were used to doing 12 to 14 hours a day with our colleagues, coworkers, competitors, and peers, and clients – and service providers, um, which I wasn't doing and I for I'd gone crazy. So I, I think I was about three months ahead of the curve here. We all realized our family and friends didn't want to talk about this. And, but we all wanted to keep talking about it because we liked doing it. And so social media kind of became a way for people to kind of rebuild their office dynamics, their professional dynamics. Um, because let's be honest, we all got tired of uh, looking at each other over Zoom, trying to stare at a screen staying focused when having just a casual chat on social media, uh, it's built new networks. And as we were talking about before this, I think one of the most interesting things, three and a half years into this, I mean, it's almost an undergrad degree from uni at this point, is coming from the New York hedge fund world. uh, I had the sense I knew everyone in New York on the hedge fund side. um, But did I know the private equity guys? Not really. I knew some industry guys. But now I feel one of the more unique dividends here is because I've been a little more out there the last couple of years is when I go travel and I come to mining finance centers, which I dream of the day in New York is one of those. It is the financial center of the world, but it's not a mining finance center. Office change, boys. What do you reckon? <laughs> we'll bring it over. Satellite office. <laughs> I think that now it's not, oh, a couple guys I met at a conference in February in Florida once a year and just got on well with. It's Folks from the industry, from private equity, um, 
not just hedge fund guys. It's it's really broadened my network in a way that I feel like I have uh, gotten access to clicks that we would just be ships passing in the night in this industry. And this is a small industry after the last decade. I mean, we're all 28 to 38, I would say here. How many Daddy's people- younger than that. <laughs> how, I mean, how many people do we know who stuck out and spent our 20s focused on an industry after the China pop, the deleveraging of the whole business, because people almost went bankrupt in 15, 16. Everyone still doesn't believe iron ore is sustainable. You just described most of Perth, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe this is my, this, maybe this will become my new home, but. Oh, never know. Well, buddy, Trav, you're, so Trav Ricciardo, if you've just met, he's actually just been voted as the biggest up and coming Twitter talent in Western <laughs> Australia. Just to well, let so where is that a vote? <laughs> what award is this? That is the award. Mate, Mate, I've got a funny story about Koala your... and Twitter. Oh, right. There was one morning, um, oh, geez, it must have been like three or four months ago. And um, I, w- I wake up and, and bro, this is when we're still doing the show out of our house. I wake up and um, Broads goes, he came to bed bloody late last night. What were you doing up so late? And I had to look at her dead in the face straight and say, I was up till 2 a.m. arguing with a koala on Twitter spaces. <laughs> and, she's, and she's like, what the fuck? <laughs> mate, if we can repeat that today. Mate, Trav, you've got the – now, this is the koala's your type of guy being the Twitter man. What What's your take on the whole – the koala? Well, I think, I think like, the Twitter thing's interesting, right? Because, like, you know, like, you and JD don't embrace Twitter that much. And I think what I like about Twitter, especially in our world, is, um, like – the fact that most people on Twitter have a pseudonym, it almost kind of eliminates the importance of all of the institutions you worked out. It kind yes, of, it takes meritocracy. It it's the closest thing you get yeah. to, a, to a meritocracy in the digital world. It's, you know, like it doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter what company you worked for. It doesn't matter what your previous occupation was. No, it you, doesn't matter if you had a silver ball with a silver spoon up your ass. No, it kind yeah. of it kind of rewards you for, you know, the strength of your ideas for the most part. And I yeah. think that's... Um, that's a pretty cool thing to just have an even le- like an even level playing field. It kind of means like anyone who, no matter what they're doing, wherever they are, can kind of you know um, put some interesting thoughts into the abyss. And sometimes when you do that, you can pick up some interesting alpha. I think. Mate, I'm coming around. <laughs> if I just don't have I, I, my Twitter involvement is a time dependent thing. I just don't have time at the moment. Even though um, yeah, your, your experience doesn't really matter on on Twitter. I think we can deduce a couple of things about. About yours, uh, Koala, you know, one is, you know, you can figure out that you, you had a, an early career as an investment banking analyst. And the second one is you had a few stints on the buy side. Um, you mentioned hedge funds. So I, I think like that's, you know, trying to trying to build um, build a bit of a story around your insight. And you've clearly been around the mining um, industry for a long time in those capacities. And I was, think, I was trying to think of like reflecting on the content you put out into the abyss and, and trying to think of like the sort of opportunities you appear to be interested in if I were to kind of like group them into three buckets, this this is my take and I'm keen to get your um, feedback. One is you, you seem to be pretty interested in the genuine tier one M&A targets that um, major miners would be interested in. The second one is you appear to be interested in value trades where you take a non-consensus but high conviction view on the commodity outlook or development pipeline, et cetera. And the third one is that you seem to be somewhat interested in call option type opportunities by virtue of stage or pricing dynamics. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a fair conceptual categorization of the, the groups of opportunities you're attracted to? If I ever launch a fund, I'll hire you as the marketing guy because that's the slide, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Better than I can say it. 
We'll write that down before you leave, mate. Just take, it, take it with you. And just what, give us a plug. Like, why them, right? Like, there's so many opportunities in this world. Like, like you're trying to screen what signal and noise. Like, what, 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 why are you drawn to those? Tier one assets. What is uh, Rio Rio's Pilbara operations? Name the iron ore price. What's the EBITDA margin been? Somewhere between 50 and 70%. Rain or shine. That's, yeah, there's cyclicality to it. But if you actually look at the history, that's a bloody good business. Mm. These first quartile long life assets, first of all, they're by definition special. We'll get into many things, but, you know, if Corvette's not special, lithium's a terrible industry to be in. If a Kakula is not special, why be involved in copper? You, you, what actually generates the great profits and sustainability of some of these industries is the fact that the cost curve steepens and that there are these really special assets that if you find one of them and you can develop it without blowing the capital budget epically, you have incredible expansion optionality. I mean, I think I said this on a different podcast, but it's more another way. We all know this great comment about, oh, the head grade of Escondida and the head grade of copper mines has been declining precipitously over the last 20 years. So you need to move more rock to get the same tons of copper. I take this the other way, which is the real interesting thing is Escondida processes today 130,000, 130 million tons a year through the mill instead of 70 10 years ago, and it produces the same amount. And you sit there and say, okay, they have to run in, they have to run in, they have to invest capital in multiple concentrators to run in place. I take this the other angle, which is if you had unlimited access to talent, equipment, and capital, Escondida would have been so much bigger day one than it was. But they also are able to do these brownfield expansions that sure it runs in place, but the returns make sense on what they're adding to it. So these long life assets with these abundant resource endowments, they have incredible optionality, which because we went through 14, 15, 16, truth be told, we're not valuing optionality in these things because as we'll get to, the buy side you can't in the public markets, you can't survive more than two bad years. And you only get a third year if you've made someone a pile of money beforehand. Otherwise, three strikes, you're out. And this is a business with very long cycles where you have to have the ability to take a perspective. Um, so there's a little just a mismatch, but I feel comfortable personally. And if I have the right investors alongside me who understand that this is a 10-year possibility or a five-year possibility, you're going to work out all right. Yeah, you could buy something completely wrong. That's always the risk. The, this is a cyclical industry by definition. But yeah, if you told a private equity guy they're going to make a 50 to 70% EBITDA margin every year. Now, based on price, that fluctuates here and there, but these are really good businesses. Find something in the first quartile. There's a reason Glencore used to have like small little silver mines in Bolivia that had some zinc and it was like the talk seven years ago was, oh, this is really nice for the marketing business. It's a nice little compliment. But I think post Brumadinho, which after Samarco in 2015, um, I think there's been a very clear attitude in the majors, which is, is this a Rio Tinto asset? Is this a Glencore asset? Is this a Freeport asset? Is this a BHP asset? 
unless something's actually material to the bottom line, 5% of EBITDA, 10% of EBITDA, are you really going to have the are you really going to have the A team on it, the B team on it? I mean, let's use um Cobar, which we all think Mick McMullen's bloody genius. What he's done at Stillwater, what he's done at Detour, and there's all the stuff he's done privately, which has done been absolutely phenomenal. But what that guy's going to do with a focused team at Cobar when if you're the guy at Glencore who's given Cobar, if you're a young mine manager, great. This is proving ground to get one of the big mines. If you've been there 20 years, you're never getting Koalasi. You're not getting Antipakai. And if you're not getting those, that's kind of the retirement job. You're, you're not, you're not going to get access to the capital. So I think in these majors now, there's an attitude of, if, is it an asset that belongs in our portfolio? If not, it needs to have a more focused team and a more focused set of shareholders. So that's why I love the tier one stuff. It's until we solve the eucalyptus paradox and mining is beloved and we have like 20 year high mining engineers uh, coming out of university, these things aren't going to be valued properly. But those big companies can't have <clears throat> anything less than a absolute tier one asset because they've got that much, that many people walking around because they're that system driven and that over the top with absolutely everything that they need these world-class ore bodies to actually make money. You throw them in a, a mid-grade gold deposit or something, for example, they wouldn't make any money. They have 25 thousand safety people walking around on the surface telling everyone to stop work like that's yeah they need those ore bodies they yeah. just, it just wouldn't work otherwise look big mines make big mines you have a bigger margin for error but they have the capital to create those big mines i sort right. of think of those cost curve dynamics as like you know cost curves are the holy grail of investing in mining completely um Yes, and I think you know we we read a lot of these you know equity research reports and all that sort of stuff, and not much time is actually spent on evaluating um, where the project sits on the cost curve and just how important that is in the context of the rest of the equity research report. But it's like the most important factor in a lot of ways because it let, it protects you throughout the cycle um, and it attracts a, a kind of a, a corporate outcome in the case of you know special kind of deposits. I think we'll get to that throughout some of our our conversation. The, the bit like, you know, when you think of your, the way you look at your opportunities and everything like that, I mean, I listened to one of your podcasts and you said that humility is not one of your strong points, right? Mm -hmm. And you did mention getting stuff wrong in your, um, in your piece there. So like, how does that, how does that impact the way that you reflect on the times that you get wrong? Do you think your, the fact that humility is not one of your strengths limits your ability to kind of, you know, reflect on the times when you make a bad call and improve and learn from that? Well, one of the things that was said about me when I was growing up was, there's something incredible about you, Koala. You're aware of all of your flaws, and yet you make no effort to change. I, I think self-awareness and knowing that there's a confidence and a subtle arrogance, which you guys might just call being American, uh, is part and of – And a prick. <laughs> <laughs> An American prick. <laughs> you got you to gotta believe you can do it to actually try it. And if you don't try it, you're never going to win. <laughs> that's the spirit we have. There's no tall poppy syndrome in the USA. <laughs> I, look, I think though it's uh, you have to kind of have the ability to go, okay, we got that right. We got that wrong. Okay. All right. Is there any lessons to take or is this one of those shit happens or to quote uh, the usual suspects, bad day, fuck it, move <laughs> on. Those are the uh, – 
you have to have, I mean, th- this whole business to go look for a de- to go look for a deposit, to build a deposit, to run a deposit, to invest your own money when index funds are there. By the simple, by simply actively managing, you have to believe in yourself. You're better than others. If you don't have that belief, even if you say, "Oh, I got something to prove. I just want to learn." No, if you're if you're committing real time to this stuff, deep down, you have that belief, and you can deny it. You can set. You can wrap yourself in. You know, it's a great team. Everything. No, if, if if you got into this, whatever you do in life, whatever you got into, you do it because you believe. You are good at it. I think that's just a simple fact to it. Like I've had a few people say who have met me from this that uh, some people are different online than they are in person. And a few folks said my online persona is a much more constrained version of who I am in real life. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real rarity. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Glad we got you in person then, Cobber. One of the the points Trav touched on in those categories was – M&A at the big end of town. So why don't we start by diving into that? You've you've got a bit more experience than most of us here in the investment part of the the mining world, and you've already touched on you know 14, 15, 16 and those days. Just to start with, I'm keen to hear how different things look now from 10 years ago. Can't believe 14's like 10 years ago. Fucking, I'm feeling old. <laughs> how old are you, Koala? 33. I see what it's called. Oh, right. <laughs> anyway, continue. Look, someone at one of the big companies said we're like a super tanker. Turning us is a nightmare. But once we get pointed in the direction we want to go and we start moving, momentum is incredible. In fact, it's so incredible that if we want to stop, we can't. Um, so I think in the big mining companies we talked about, all the systems, the processes, um, these things, it's not like there's four, with the exception of Glencore, which I think from everything I can observe outside looking in, still has a partnership mindset and a desire to be flexible and be able to move fast and make decisions and own them. I mean, look, First Quantum announced earlier this year that they're going to, um, they bought 55% of LaGranja from Rio Tinto for $105 million and a commitment to spend first $546 million of incremental expenditures. That deal was first talked about, I think, on Mining.com in 2020. Lagrange has been sitting in the Rio portfolio for over a decade. How does that deal take three years? I think that you just have to say that these things, these things take time. They take alignment. Uh, I mean – I think we all kind of see the logic of BHP Oz Minerals, but how do you get all the internal systems of a major miner and then get management on board, get the board on board, agree the price makes sense, and then actually have the target look at you and go, yeah, this makes sense for us too. I mean, when you have so many things ever, I mean, M&A is hard. Like, it's just, it's one of the reasons you don't see that many deals. I mean, this, this Tech Glencore saga... Then that ended up with Glencore buying the coal business from tech. I mean, we learned about through that that Ivan and Don Lindsay had talked about this a few years ago, but how do you get that alignment? And then I, as I said very publicly multiple places, I thought 
Glentech would have been a fabulous deal. But the chairman emeritus who has the Class A shares didn't feel the same way. But how much of this is, you know, repercussions from the terrible M&A that was done 10 or 15 years ago? Like you, you talk about M&A taking so long. But is that a sort of mindset change from the amount of capital that was burnt through the, you know, atrocious deals that were done? What do you got? Riversdale, Alcan. There was some big humdingers, wasn't there? There's plenty. I mean, everyone's had, everyone's had disasters. Um, and I think a good example of this is uh, the amount of optionality that is sitting on the majors' balance sheets right now that is not understood by the market because everyone who made money in the China super cycle is retired. You nailed the 15-16 collapse. You either walked away or if you kept saying this is the end of China, you've been carried out on a stretcher by now. But if you look at second half 15, first half 16, remember September 2015, Glencore, even the partners capitulated and said we're over levered, we're going to do a rights issue, and we're going to take our pro rata. Um, and they did that at, memory serves me correct, it was 125 pence. Um, I look at that and if you look at second half 15, one half age 16, come to trophy, but I mean, that was a nightmare. If we ever go back there, we're going to be drinking something far stronger than beer doing this podcast. <laughs> um, 8 billion of EBITDA. What is Glenn and Glencore's bought some coal mines out of, um, Rio since then fine tuned here and there, but let's. I think it's fair to say it's probably a nine, ten billion trophy if we go back to that nightmare. What's Glencore's net debt policy today before we end factor in Elk Valley and everything else? It's ten billion. They have a base distribution policy. They'll look at all their obligations and then they'll say, okay, we may do an incremental capital return, but it's kind of like a sweep up to ten billion. And for strategic value creative MA, they'll go to sixteen billion and then delever themselves. For a business that has trophy EBITDA of $10 billion, or even if we forget that, say it's $8 billion, two times trophy EBITDA is the max if they do M&A. You're seriously telling me that second half 15, first half 16 was not sustainable. Like if that had gone on for one more year, multiple companies would have gone into restructuring. Multiple mines would have closed. You would have to say it's the end of growing metals demand globally. I personally think that these businesses could run at three times trophy, but duh. Let's go take the 15, 16, that nightmare 12 months, adjust for M&A and all that. You could run at three times trophy, but duh, provided you don't have a wall of maturities hitting in one given year. So just have a responsible treasury department, a thoughtful CFO, but no one's running at that level. No one dares goes beyond one, two times. So there's a lot of optionality and – it's very difficult to get M&A done, and that's why I think from an exploration perspective, the tier ones are what's so impressive because what's actually going to get someone to get through all the committees and get focused is to say, this asset belongs with us. You know what takes an asset to be developed independently? It can't catch the eyes of a Rio or a BHP. Why did Robert Friedland have to, just have to deliver Kamoa Kakula? Remember, he sold. He did Zajin, 9.9% at a premium in late 15. He sold 50% of Kamoka Kula, which is the 80% because the Congo got 20%. So if you think about it, half of Kamoka Kula, and they discovered Kakula announcement in uh, for early 16. So half of Kamoka Kula goes to the Chinese at the asset level. 
And then to actually finance the build of that thing, he had to give, he had to do 20% to Citic at a premium, 10% to Citic at a premium. Long story short, 40% of Ivanhoe Mines today is owned by Zijin and Citic, half the asset. Platte Reef is interesting. Kapushi's interesting. Western Forelands has a lot of optionality, but who are we kidding? The value of that business, overwhelmingly, is Kamokakula. So for an asset that will be the second biggest copper mine in the world come five, six years from now, and has multiple expansion opportunities, if you include the Western Forelands, he had to basically sell 75% of the economics to the Chinese. So uh, because biggest based on copper output, I assume you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And also yeah. phenomenal profitability. So bloody high. But also yeah. bloody, bloody incredible profitability. Mm. The smelter is one of the most ESG favorable investments. You're not going to, you're going to produce acid that is then going to be a great byproduct in the African copper belt where you have oxides that need acid. Instead of sending out 50% concentrate, you're sending out 100% copper. Layer in the rail, it's just, it, it solves logistics, it reduces costs, it's what everything ESG should be. But I say this because that was the Congo. No one was ready to go to the Congo, even for an asset that good. And so I look at all this and I say, when you go look at exploration, one in a thousand discoveries become a mine or one in a thousand outcrops becomes a discovery or a deposit. When you go looking, you want to go find something that is so self-evidently incredible that you just go, yeah, we all know where that asset ends up one day. But what about like Barrick, for instance? They've been operating – well, that was – sorry, that was Rangold originally. Now it's Barrick for the Kabali mine in DRC. Does it sound like the incumbents in places like the DRC and there's other obviously other mines there as well – they're a lot safer than anyone knew that wants to go there in terms of ease of operation. We've obviously seen the AVZ thing, but they've obviously been operating for a long time there without too much drama. They as delivered far up as there. I know. Look, they're up there. They're up there in the Northeast Congo, which is arguably, I mean, the Congo's a massive country. Mm. The copper's all in the South. I mean, that's a, I've been, I've been to that part of the Congo. Um, but look, I, the Northeast Congo is a much more complicated part of it. Uh, Kabali is an incredible mine, and I don't spend much time on the golds, but I'll pivot your question to everyone knows I'm a shareholder and big believer in Alphamen, which has a beautiful tin asset up there in North Kivu. Um, you sit there and go, it, it, there's not a logistics in there. There's not the logistics in there. Building these mines are difficult, uh, but they want the jobs. You have to be good with the community. You have to have the right talented people to deliver it, but you got to go where the geology is. Hmm. Simple as that. I mean, bringing it back to the Yemen A piece, um, what was your, what was the point in talking about Ivanhoe in the context of you know the Yemen A dynamics of of the majors? Are you, are you implying that it's you know that Friedland had to develop that because the majors didn't didn't take an interest or what? Like what, what's the what's the broader commentary on on the Yemen A strategy? I think everyone knew even in seventeen that Kamo Kakula was an exceptional asset, with Kakula being phase one of it. With that said, does Robert expect a full price when he finds something truly incredible? He expects to be compensated for it. You don't be as successful as he has been without having that attitude. Um, but I think coming out of the trauma of the 2011 to 16 period, when you're the CEO of a major mining company, you're going to ask yourself, why do I have this job? And there weren't a lot of retirements around that time. It's I'm in this job. 
because they decided they needed a fresh set of a fresh think on things. And what was the biggest mistake you made in the first half of the 2010s? You bought something. Hmm. So what do you do if you're given a job because the person above wasn't performing to the standards of their boss, the board, and the shareholders? What was their mistake? Okay. First rule, don't do that. And so who's going to go chase where you're going to have to pay full price for and, and tier one pro assets you have to pay full because if it's self-evident the shareholders know it's a tier one price as well yeah <laughs> well that's why the that's why the value is in the discovery of something incredible and then there's value in delivering it running it but also the optionality and exercising the optionality of expansions and all that in these great or buys i mean freeport had a great slide in the 2010s looking at Morenci, Sarah Verde, Grassberg, with a simple message: the big minds get bigger. This is before they, and they still had 10K, 10K Fungarumi at the time. Like that's how these things. Everyone goes, well, what, what? Where's all the copper come from? Why is this uh, deficit kept getting pushed out? It's because BHP is going to do brownfields in southern Australia. They're going to figure out what to do at Escondida to maintain production. It's, it's all those things. So I bring up Ivanhoe because. You can say that's the deal that that should be in a major today, but just because of the timing of the cycles and confusion about and, and trying to understand the Congo and think about getting companies, Western companies to go into the Congo, that asset had been in Chile, that asset had been in Peru, that asset had been in Canada or WA, that asset is not going into production as an independent asset. That's why I bring it up because that's the one thing when you say koala – what do you mean tier ones? That's a tier one that went independent. It went independent because it was in Katanga. It's not – if that was in any other place effectively, that that's taken over. And you, you mentioned <clears throat> Freeport there. It's interesting with 10K around that time, I think in 16, mm -hmm. they sold it. Yeah. What, what do you think the thinking with all the majors then selling some of these assets that are tier one that keep going on? <laughs> uh, I'm excited uh, about this now for your, uh, <laughs> anticipation. That's been 10 years I can tell the story. Um, third month of investment banking got called into a managing director's office and said, um, we've been asked to pitch for the fairness opinion for a mining company that's going to diversify into oil and gas and make two simultaneous acquisitions. Freeport. We did not win that mandate. And probably for the best because given how well that was received and all the litigation that went on after that, I think maybe the bank that actually won that, some of the bankers had to testify in Delaware Chancery Court. They didn't win. <laughs> well, but, so what's the story? I don't know. But the reason Tenki had to get sold so let's just think about a few things Freeport had to do. Uh, deciding to go into oil and gas in late 2012, early 2013, uh, which we remember the nightmare of iron ore going to 40. Now, oil went negative in COVID, but uh, it started with a two at one point in early 16 as well. So thank you, Shale. Um, Freeport had to delever. Carl Icahn became an activist, but they had levered up, which, again, everyone's terrified to use leverage now. Um, they had an 
at the money equity offering going on. I mean, this is a New York Stock Exchange, multi-billion dollar company that traded below $10 at one point. And look, everyone was convinced they, were, they weren't making money. The Grassberg contract was going to be up for renegotiation in five years, in the next five years. The debt was onerous. They weren't generating free cash flow. They sold 13% of Morency to the Japanese who were already 12% partners there for a billion dollars. I mean, Morency for crying out loud. That's an amazing asset. That's one of the best assets in Arizona. Um, and they sold Tanki Funarumi for $2.5 billion right before Cobalt ripped uh, to China Mali because if you're trying to stay alive, you have to make decisions and triage that maybe long-term are going to look very foolish, but if you end up in a car crash and you're losing a lot of blood. I find it interesting, right? You're, you're going to put a uh, bandage. Oh, God. What do you call those things that uh, – Tourniquet? Tourni yeah. yeah. You're going to put a tourniquet on an arm to stop the bleeding. I thought you were having a bloody spell attack. <laughs> hey, fuck it. I we were going to have yeah. to give you a map to No, it's the – <laughs> but no, you'll put tourniquets on things and just to save the life, even if – you might impair things down the road. Yeah. And that's what happens when you make critical mistakes. I have two follow-ups. Firstly, those sorts of bits of M&A, you know, BHB tried in, in oil and gas, I think a few years before that as well. That's the M&A I'm, I'm talking about where I think the whole investment community is scared of what the, uh, the miners will do once they start getting, and they have had over the past few years, great cash flows, you know. They're scared they'll do stupid M&A like that again. Do you think that's still front and center of investors' minds? I think, I think everyone is now starting to get comfortable with the idea that these big established mining companies um, have a license to grow. Um, look, Rio, 15% owned by the Chinese. There's an understanding directly between Canberra and Beijing that that can't go anymore. Rio can't buy stock unless something's sorted out there. They can't buy back stock. BHP is not buying back stock right now. I think one of the reasons BHP is buying, not buying back stock is because, first of all, redomiciling and collapsing the dual listing. You guys have these wonderful franking credits here. Yeah, so there's a great preference for that. Super funds love DVs. But BHP and Rio have had a little bit of a re-rating. I mean, the only major that hasn't had a re-rating, and I think that's because of coal, is Glencore to some extent. So uh, you could sit there and say the buybacks aren't as value accretive as they would have been. I would turn that around and say that for about seven years – the market has looked at this industry and said, decapitalize it. Give me my money back. We don't trust you. We don't need as much of this in the future. So give me dividends, buy back stock, decapitalize the industry. We're not going to need you anymore. You're, it's, it's, it was ESG to an extreme through the multiples. We're now starting to understand how much we're going to need this stuff. So if you've already sunk the capital, you have all this optionality. The multiples are growing. And I wouldn't say – you could say cynically buybacks aren't accretive anymore. I would say there's a license to grow, a license to invest responsibly. But everyone's going to get one shot. And if you screw it up, you're going to go in the penalty box. Can I, can I bring it back to your Freeport point just briefly? Listening to that story, it always sounds like a key message or a key takeaway I have from that story is that Leverage can bite you in the ass, but simultaneously, as, as you tell that story with that lesson, you also advocate for 
minus today to have three times trophy EBITDA instead of one times trophy EBITDA. That was my second question. <laughs> <laughs> I read yeah. your mind. Yeah. <laughs> How do you reconcile those two views? Well, I reconcile it with the fact that you look at – if you have a responsible maturity ladder, you got to say, okay, if we go into a three-year depression, um, and let's say you had 10% of the debt amortizing every year starting in year five. And you were responsible about refinancing things when times are good and maintaining optionality. You're always going to have some runway. Um, and again, the trough happens for 12 months. So I think you can have a responsible perspective. I'm not saying let's take mid-cycle, lever it up four times and act like we're Apollo or Blackstone buying a packaging company. I'm saying recognize that there's potential here, but everyone's still traumatized by it. Um, and so there's opportunities to do stuff there, but we're so far away. And this is why cycles exist. Imagine – this is just four of us talking around a table. Imagine trying to get everyone in a mining company, a big $100 billion, $50 billion mining company to get around. We're going to be the first to do this. We're going to be the first to go, you know what? Let's do something creative. But also, quite frankly, what's the harm in using shares for M&A? The Glencore proposal for tech was all stock. I think, look, if you have a major discovery and look, exploration, the way it works is you hit a great hole. Does the follow-up validate? And all of a sudden you realize you have something self-evident. It's incredible wealth creation very quickly. Why would you want to take cash and pay capital gains if you're being acquired by a responsible, diversified, who's going to be a great custodian of the asset and you aren't going to have to pay capital gains because it's a share swap. Might so, be all right for them, as you said, if they haven't been re-rated yet. Yeah, but even still, good for them. We're not we're not in a world where these guys are trading at premium multiples, or it's like go buy everything. We want you to go buy. We don't want the money back. We're, we're not in a go on a shopping spree. It's okay. Go find the next. What what's the next Escondida for BHP? It's going to be Vicuña, Argentina. Simple as that. Like. What, what, what else is out there that's going to give them the same scale optionality in a place where they go, okay, I can see how it's going to work. I can see how all the capital is going to go in, but we're going to have to sink a lot of capital. We're going to have to think long-term, but that will still be a mine running when all of our grandkids are going into retirement. That's the optionality, but we're only now talking about optionality instead of you trade a 15% free cash flow yield at spot. Give me my money back. I just want to – I'm renting these stocks because I'm terrified – I lose money in mining, I'll get fired. Great line in New York. No long only analyst or PM has gone fired for missing a mining cycle. What um so we've seen a lot lately and it's becoming just the new thing. We even saw it today with Perseus buying into Orcorp. Where there's no there's no real takeovers or scheme of arrangements anymore. It's just let's just buy 15 to 20% of the company and we'll block any future M&A and we'll just now have in a way, control of the company. We've seen on our on our side of the world, what have we got? We've got Delta, Wildcat, Azure, Liontown. We've got, and as I said, Orcorp today. What do you think of the whole strategy? All right, so um, that's the invitation to talk about lithium, WA. Should we, we talk about it? We can, yeah. Let, let's talk about the, the, well, the uncompetitive just... nature of the M&A. But, All right. Uh, but let's, yeah. <laughs> Will, Will Ferrell I... meme time. 
uncompetitive because there's they're not allowing it to be competitive. Oh, that's all by the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it makes sense to drill another hole in Western Australia to look for lithium for the next two to three years in light of what's happened in the last three months. Oh, we've got the intro sorted. Put the drill yeah. down. Done. It's pointless because the wealthy people, good people of Perth, as I'd like to leave tomorrow. Um, Shout out, Christina. Have, yeah, hold um, him up at immigration. <laughs> I mean, you do. Give it time, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll make sure you're in the air first. <laughs> the uh, Look, Albemarle, simple deal with Liontown. You get the higher bid, and then you have a blocking bid come in. SQM looks at that and says, okay, well, we're strategic. We're totally fine with this. Uh, 352, and if a couple billionaires out of Earth and Western Australia decide they want to play the same games, put option to everyone at 350. We'll, we'll, and I think the mind is like, great. We'll end up with or 51%, 52%. Gina ends up with 19.9. Chris ends up with somewhere between 10 and 19.9. Anyone wants to be uh, the minority uh, tetherball between all of us, that's fine. Creasy's in there too, and mm. you got the carried up. And they've just all kind of gone... I mean, you've sterilized the whole WA market because if it's deemed it, – it's not even that Gina bought at 250 when the initial bid came in. It was when the final number was decided, and it's like the Yankees have deemed this worthy. <laughs> I must defend the honor of the Pilbara and my homeland. My father found the Pilbara. That's it. Okay. And some damn Brits <laughs> have mined it, <laughs> and I will not let that happen again. <laughs> but do you think on the Liontown case, if she started buying, let's talk Liontown, if she started buying it a dollar fifty or something before, I think she had a minority stake. That was, yeah, yeah, but if she like become a, became substantial and then started buying, uh, it wouldn't have ever. Got back down to a dollar fifty. I don't think. Like she did pay, obviously, a significant premium for that twenty percent up near three bucks. But now it's what trading at a dollar thirty seven today. I know the lithium price fell about fifty percent in between that, but all, all that price movement from a dollar fifty to three bucks was purely a function of Albemarle's numerous bids. If you, if she played a hand too early, I don't think it. Yeah, there, there's not really any interest at the moment <laughs> in it, but it might have been. It might it just. Yeah, if you think it would have went different. If you think of a strategy is like minimizing consideration for 100, percent right? Assume, yeah. assume that's the, the plan. She then might you get 100 80 for absolutely fuck yeah, all. Yeah, you, you can back solve the strategy today as rational. Look, when she made her move, you do not get the impression that this was a fundamental position for her. If it was a fundamental position. She would have been in already. On the first bid, she would have been there buying alongside Albemarle when Albemarle would buy below 250 in the market. And it would have been made very clear. This isn't happening. I want this to go the distance. It, 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 you wouldn't have wasted the legal resources, the banking resources, the corporate resources on this drama. What was it? It was like a six-month game. 
But she, is any position in Australia fundamental to her because she's got so much money anyway? Mate, most nothing. billionaires don't have eighteen billion in cash. Yeah, like, like she literally has eighteen billion in cash. Just a piss in the ocean for her. Yeah. Like 20. even the whole of Lion Town yeah. is not much to her. It's <laughs> exciting though from a macro lithium perspective because can you imagine yeah. Lion Town was already me- is already being built? But can you imagine Azure, Delta, Wildcat? It's um sorry, it's Wildcat. Just like, <laughs> Pegmatite 4, Pegmatite 5, uh, Pegmatite 6 is going to need a flow plant and has some mica, but whatever. Anything's good right now. The whole thing is these things are not all going to come on. First of all, you're not going to have the equipment, the labor, and the capital all running on three big projects at once. Chris and Gina have sat down and said, you will go in the order that we tell you to when we decide, which is great. You've just smoothed out the supply growth. Um, but I think everyone in Australia should really go look back on the saga of Turquoise Hill uh, when Rio figured out that they didn't actually have a standstill to stay at 49%. And they went to 50.1. Friedland left the board. And we're going back, and one of the things I nerd out about is understanding the history of these cycles and really digging into this because these things repeat. They don't, they don't repeat, but they rhyme, to be cliche. So understanding these things and... Rio got to 50.1, and because of the original agreement Rio and Ivanhoe Turquoise Hill had, basically Rio controlled everything. And then Rio builds OT. Now, was it bad Chinese steel in Shaft 2 that had just not really been maintained or had gone bad while uh, the underground was stalled? Was it they actually got underground and the ground conditions were poor? But all of a sudden, Oyotogoi Underground took an extra two years and an extra like $3 billion. Nothing to Rio Tinto, but if you're the 49% Turquoise Hill minorities, I mean, Rio doesn't put you out of your misery until, like, the thing's about ready to ramp. Mm. So having gone through the Turquoise Hill saga myself and having been to OT twice, amazing asset. But the drama, the vol, the headaches, and what, wasn't it wasn't there, worth it. Isn't there another – there's a part of the ore body b- between a certain RL that is owned by another party that there was a court case going yeah, on about that? Not a big deal. Yeah, but it was like, as you said, just drama. I can, I can see why. <clears throat> I'm I'm surprised about the what happened with Lion Town, but that might be just an Albemarle thing. But you can you can see why Azua and Wildcat are attracting so much attention without not much. I if there's shitloads of underground mines come online to get skilled labour and to get the people to do it is so much harder than getting big open pits going. Big open pits are so much simpler. Just blow the living fuck out of it, dig it up. There is a lot of intricacies to it. But to get skillful people to run an underground mine and get everything set up. Isn't that always that, the question? What, Hasn't that been the question about Liontown the whole time is show me a underground hard rock lithium mine. Ah, uh, but doesn't matter what the rock is. It's it's all it's all the same methods. I don't. It's, yeah. And there's look Prominent Hill and Carapatina and that lot. They're they're of a similar scale. Lot Prominent Hill was three to four million tonne, I think, out from an underground. It's they they exist. How thick are the seams though? I mean, I'm I'm not yeah. I, I'm not underground miner, but I'm just saying you haven't really seen that before in the hard rock lithium space. Is no. it a is it a, is it thick enough? 
like these are oh, all the dynamics. Yeah, well, Limetown is it's fucking huge. Like it's like it's big. Well, like, look, I believe Mount, that Mount, too. Album Albemarle was ready to do it. I assume they've done yeah. their work. Mount, Mount Ida would be a different wow. case. Like that's actually a lot. Looks like a lot thinner. Um, so you know, control on the iron contamination and and things like that. They'll need. Yeah, that, that's a bit different. But overall, just the skill levels and the amount of people available required to just drive a heap of trucks and blast, do these mass blasts in open pits. It's just a different arena and that's why I believe Azura and Wildcat have got so much attention because they're just e – it's so much easier. Yeah. Mm. So that's where the that's where the focus will be. You but, know any more that's going to pop up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you let us know afterwards. But why would I but why would I – but why would you want to be Chris and Gina's bitch? Well, but – does that mean like okay, Minres? Minres must be a bloody. If if these companies are getting buggered over by their shareholdings and losing control and everything, obviously the value is going back towards the value has to go somewhere. If they're losing value, obviously the value must go to Chris and Gina. Yeah, but I think to the point about getting optionality fully underappreciated in the majors and in these big assets, I mean. Are Chris and Gina really going to come out and say to the world, all right, well, we're not coordinating. I want to be very clear. We are not coordinating. <laughs> but, you know, just I think we're aligned with the other shareholders here. And, you know, I think we'll do this. Then we'll do that. And it's it's one of those things where um, I, had a, I had a mining company recently explain to me that they're going to drill out a target. And they will probably – but they have to negotiate with the local community – for exploitation rights. They have the rights to drill, but then they're going to have to pay something to actually mine it. And this is a satellite deposit. And it's like, okay, well, here's the question. Do you drill it fully out such that if you drill it fully out, you're paying, you're going to, you're going to pay full freight. Do you drill it out just so you can prove it justifies developing and then negotiate with the community. And then you realize, and then, but then the market doesn't appreciate the full potential of the, of the whole thing. It's it's just tricky to understand all these iterations because we, we're so used to now thinking about NAV. And NAV is a snapshot of if I sink this capital and deliver this mine plan and deliver these cash flows, what is it worth? You then think about, okay, well, what if we double the thing in year three? What if we do a little You can build work. that into NAV. You can you can risk your yeah. NAV. Oh, you can well you, well, you then have to add on to the NAV, okay, we're gonna deploy two billion dollars in year three and we're gonna 2x cash flow, but there's all these decision trees looking forward. You can chuck on some stupid exploration value and <laughs> say your there's always captured a, in there. There's always a way. <laughs> Nav can it, capture that. Excel, Excel <laughs> can do anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but imagine, like you talk, you look at what the lithium price has done, how much it's fallen off. Imagine if bloody like AVZ and Leo Lithium, actually their mines were actually being developed right now. Like. All this, a lot of, and we talked about it the other week, all the chat we've been having about lithium has been about change of rock ownership. Mm-hmm. Like there's line towns coming online. That's exciting. A lot of a lot of the new lithium supply in Australia has been from organic expansion. Um, there isn't like, yeah, we're waiting for the actual rock to come. <laughs> it's going to be exciting when it does. Imagine I mean, if AVZ injected themselves <laughs> like back before yeah it'd be yeah be a different story i'm interested to get your your thoughts you know around that how do you see the supply growth of 
lithium over the next 10 years. You, you've written a substack over a year ago now saying lithium is to the effect of the next iron ore. It's iron ore 20 years ago. Iron ore 20 years ago. How does, I mean, since you've written that a year ago, how has your thinking changed at all? No. I think we, we're all way, if you, if you want to believe that there's going to be a wall of cheap lithium coming, you need to believe in direct lithium extraction, which I personally think is HPAL 30 years ago. So um, the risk of not getting out of this city alive tomorrow, I'd like to bring up Anaconda Nickel. HPAL is a tricky little thing, and it's taken a long time to sort out. But I think you saying that about DLE puts you in the good books of a lot of people in WA as well, so they're sort of (laughs) way off. They're they're rock, 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 mate. Everything else is not going to work. Me and the folks at WA have a complicated and volatile, beautiful romance. (laughs) But, I mean, yeah, I think – A lot of make-up sex. (laughs) (laughs) I think to the point it's it's very good for hard rock – Lithium, if DLE isn't a, you know, in WA, if DLE isn't a imminent threat. It's a bold position to say that, you know, um, lithium is iron ore 2.0 because, like, it's not like there's a bunch of latent iron ore that could just supply, that could come online as technology advances. Um, but there is with lithium, unless you believed in recycling, you know, all of a sudden. Um, so, like, how can you sort of confidently have the view that lithium is iron ore 2.0 when? Like the abundance of it is more prevalent. There's um, you don't have such a steep cost curve there, and there's a bunch of latent like lithium that can come online if technology permitted. If technology permitted, correct. If technology permitted, we would have EAFs all over the place, not just as a dominant steel production in the U.S., but then you actually need to have the scrap, and you actually need to have scrap in the right spec, not the steel that was acceptable 30 years ago, that is not going into a skyscraper built today. In fact, you go look at the iron uh, unit mix that goes into a USEAF, and Volley did an amazing slide deck on this that I've referenced multiple times from like four or five years ago. I mean, the site visit and the analyst day presentations are incredible because the research departments in these companies, for as slow as they move on things, the research they do is phenomenal on an academic thinking really longer term. The EAFs in the U.S., 20 to 25% of the iron mix is not just scrap because they need the components of virgin iron or DRI to actually deliver the steel on spec. So I think even Robert Freeland would say 10 years ago, we're on a big floating ball of iron and he wasn't excited about iron ore. Today he has NIMBA. Uh, in Guinea, or it's Liberia, it's one side of the border, uh, which is very near Simindu. So I think you actually have to think about this in the sense, let's use, look at iron ore. Everyone's convinced this price is not sustainable. Uh, there's plenty of iron ore here and there, like Beach Peak could go to 330, like Iron Bridge, Simindu's coming, Vale, once they get their dam sorted, they could go back to 400 if they wanted to. Uh, I've said, I think Mary River up in Baffin Island in Northern Canada is probably the asset that could build the next great major. Um, it's all there, but there's also little magnetite, hematite projects all over the place. I mean, there's small things in WA, yep. but the whole thing is, why is all these iron ore guys making so much money? It's because there's only like four or five places in the world, and they've built the great mining companies where there's big scale, low-cost 
it's these small little minds which are really hard to work on. And that's why no one tries to do it anymore, quite frankly. So you get this very steep cost curve. And to bring it back to lithium, uh, pitolite, whether it's coming out of Africa and it's being processed in China, that's kind of set the top of the cost curve. There is a very steep phantom fourth quartile. Now, you can have restocking and destocking that creates all this volatility. I would just remind everyone, the long-term price is the average price. You got to overshoot it and undershoot it. As I see, Spodge mean hit fourteen hundred today. Mm. So if you want to have the if you want to enjoy the five thousand six thousand, you got to be happy with the fourteen hundred. Which is why I also wrote that Substack over a year ago that said volatility is quality's best friend. Mm. That's how you get the chance to buy these things cheap when people panic and you go, "All right, it's going to be fine." And I think the price is higher longer term than it is today. But I look at this and I say, "Okay, the James Bay Allchem asset." The resource is in 63 dikes. Contamination, dilution, how do you run all that cleanly? How, NAL has failed twice. There are folks that I spoke to who are very experienced people that I said, hey, I've been investing in some lithium exploration stuff. It looks very interesting. I really think you should take a look at it. And they said, koala, I was involved in NAL. One of the times it screwed up. You say hard rock spodumene lithium in Canada or even Australia. You've just triggered PTSD for me. <laughs> I think just like to find these quality scale things. Now, let's see how Azor comes together. And if you really want to get into the, and I want to turn this into a WA versus everything else, but most of these things in WA are going to require flotation. So you got to get water. You got to get water on spec. These things will eventually work. It's just the ramp-ups are going to take longer than I think people think. Well, that's a Pilgangor is the classic example. They've got a lot of internal docks in the ore body and, you know, it's all it's – it's not an exact science. They just say, oh, start digging here, stop digging there based on where these blast balls have ended up. Now, you know, 18 months of sort of tweaking the flotation side of things. Every, every site's hey, new different, century. obviously. As someone who uh – who once upon a time had a, a junior go see New Century as their first mine site visit and doing of some pro and doing the model and everything and the model looked beautiful. So you know, voila, the recoveries weren't good this month, this quarter because you know we're gonna have to put another Jameson cell in. It's like it's just one of those things where, at some point, you actually have, you run out of capital, patience, and runway. It's just these things are gonna take a lot more time and. I think as people see that, I mean, yeah, 3,000, 4,000 for two years, everyone's going to be like, I don't care. Just go. We'll figure it out. We have time to figure it out. The prize is big enough. We hang out at 1,500 to 2,000. All right. Well, is it going to take us another six to 12 months to get this sorted? All right. What do the returns look like? It's just a – I think it's one of those things where everyone wants to believe we're going to have cheap lithium. They want to believe Elon that refining's the bottleneck. And these refineries are really hard to build. But I stand by, this is going to look like WA iron ore going to steel mills in China. There were no matter how great the technology is. If you don't control your rock and you don't control your feedstock, that's where the profit's going to be because there's just not going to be that many special ore bodies that can, can deliver a consistent blend of feed to a very what is really a very sensitive steel mill with PhDs running it to deliver the spec that's then going to go into these EVs. Simple as that. Really? Okay.
Yeah, look at Pil- Pilbara, the reason the Pilbara is Pilbara is just from, what, a year's worth of massive prices that gave them three billion bucks worth of cash. Like they've just, they just capitalised, they were just there at the perfect time, had it all ready and just absolutely spiked it. And that year or two years of tinkering and getting it all right was done before the prices before went mental. It. So perfect time. They had the, the IP or whatever to, to understand how to maximise the value of the the, the processing and everything, right? Yeah. Alrighty, there was part one of our chat with Koala. It was, JD. It was. Yeah. Plenty more to come. We went for a couple of hours. What, what happens in part two? I don't know yet. I've, um, I put the boxing ed- gloves on. I haven't edited it yet. We've got, no. some, ju- <laughs> we've got some juicy stuff coming. We right. do. Tra- like, to, to be fair, like Trav literally, he had three beers in two hours, which I think is pretty acceptable, but it's enough to get him going, put it that way. <laughs> just needed to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> just, just drop the shackles. Yeah. All righty. We've got, we've got one of our favourite topics, incentives coming up. We're going to talk shareholder activism and a whole heap more. I reckon we'll just leave it at that. And just leave it at a whole heap more. You know awesome. those TV shows when they get to the final, the final ad of like a broadcast and they're like plenty more to come they're literally going to come back and sign off (laughs) (laughs) try and keep you hooked righto let's thanks all the partners the ESGC at the top of the show Future Proof Consulting and K-Drill who are going to be breaking iron ore for Gina very soon we've also got DSI Underground Terra Capital McMahon Mining Title Services Anytime Exploration KCA Site Services JB Search and Brooks Airways. (laughs) (laughs) Hooteroo. Hooteroo. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.